Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to another week in the Week in Film Tech. This is the Week in Film Tech for October 3rd, 2019. This week I'm going to be covering GoPro, the new Hero 8, just got announced 4K monitors from Small HD that are actually branded Small 4K. Quasar rolls out a whole DC power accessory system that I'm very excited about. In Gear Cage, I have the new Narbox 2.0 that came out yesterday, Wednesday, whatever the hell day that was. And then I have a Hey Professor from a former student who actually said Hey Professor to me when they were my student. All that this week on the Week in Film Tech. All right, so GoPro has released the Hero 8. A little bit of context. Why is GoPro mentioned on a filmmaking podcast? Look, GoPros show up on pro film sets all the time, right? If you're doing a reality television show about, like, car racing, I color-graded one of those once, every car gets rigged up with, like, a dozen different GoPros. You can control them all from a remote app. You know, I've done a lot of action shoots where we just bring out a couple GoPros. We throw them in the pool. We have a nice, beautiful red shot of the person diving into the pool and then a GoPro underwater. They're easy, they're fun, they're good to have around. And particularly relevant to indie filmmakers is DJI came out with the Osmo Action earlier in the summer with a front-facing monitor. And I have to say that front-facing monitor is killer. Now, I think they mostly did it for the vloggers, which isn't really our market. Although, I guess technically, am I vlogging right now? They mostly did it for the vloggers. That's not really our market. My market, filmmakers, we like a front-facing camera because, frankly, sometimes you're rigging up that GoPro against a wall where you can't see the back camera. Or, like, inside a car, we're rigging it to the ceiling or the back of a seat, and you can't see the back facing screen and it is annoying to set your framing that way obviously you can sync it up to an app and see the framing on your phone with a little delay or lag that's fine but that front facing monitor holy cow changes everything for me really puts the dji osmo action to be the like oh if i was about to go buy four action cameras for my next shoot just to have in the bag osmo action i think would win obviously gopro really had to come back from that hero 8 came out not huge vast camera improvements you know, the camera's great. It's pretty similar to the 7, but they introduced mods. So there is a media mod, which uh, is actually, I think the media mod's kind of interesting. It's like a an L-bracket attachment that attaches to it and gives you like a shotgun microphone and better in and out ports and stuff like that. I think that's cool. You can, with the media mod, you can attach an extra monitor onto the top that flips forward. So it's not built into the unit. You're not going to use it for like an underwater thing where you dive down there and you can see your framing in the underwater shot. But it is sort of a useful thing. It's really going to help make the vloggers happy. It's not as useful for filmmakers, I don't think, that uh, monitor mod. And then there's an LED mod, which actually I dig. I used to be really anti-on-camera lights, but sometimes, frankly, having an on-camera light, little LED, you can dim up, you can dim down, you can put a little sparkle in somebody's eyes, I think is great. It's an interesting move for GoPro. I think GoPro was left a little flat-footed. I think Osmo Action stepped on their territory a bit more than they thought it would. And uh, I think the Hero 9, in a year or two, will probably have a front-facing screen. It's a little bit of a workaround to have, like, a mod front-facing screen. Feels a little afterthoughty to me. But the vlogging market is a big one. And a lot of vloggers use these, like, hooked-together, hiccupy systems. And uh, it's interesting to really see them try and make, like, a one-stop shop integrated system for vlogging. So... That is the GoPro Hero 8. You'll probably end up in a conversation about the mods with somebody. All right, next up, Small HD has come out with two new series of monitors. It's not actually two new series of monitors, but it's expanding one and launching another, the CineLine and the Vision Line. Uh, and first off, these are all 4K monitors, and they're being branded as small 4K. The company's not changing its name. It's still going to be Small HD. And honestly, in another 10 years, nobody's going to remember that HD was originally 1920 by 1080 HD will eventually just become like HQ, like hot quality, I think. 
So I think they're smart to stick with the name. They've got a brand, stick with it. But these are going to be branded as small 4K because they're 4K monitors. And I think that's a little pleasantly cheeky. Full 4K resolution, full 4K pipeline, full HDR. The Cine monitors are designed for uh, life on set. And uh, the reason why I say it's not an entirely new line, because there's already a Cine 7 that came out at NAB. And now there's a Cine 13 and 24 and you know, a variety of different sizes. And then there's the vision line that's more focused on post-production. And what they're really focusing on in post-production is they're really focusing on a color gamut. 114% of DCI P3 color gamut, 2,000 plus local dimming zones. And they're claiming a million to one contrast ratio. Now, anytime you get up to million to one contrast ratios, there's always a little bit of marketing in that. Like, I don't know that humans are going to be able to tell the difference between like 200,000 to one and a million to one. Like, the contrast ratio at that point is so extreme and contrast ratios in marketing, uh, in monitor marketing in general are so, I don't think small HD exaggerates very much in their marketing, but I think a million to one contrast ratio is not, I mean, look, I have to see one in the field. I haven't seen one in the field yet. Maybe it's like a noticeable million to one. We'll see. More important for me is peak luminance. You know, the cine monitors, we're seeing 2,500 nits of peak luminance. That's pretty great. I'm not going to stare at 2,500 nits of peak luminance all day in a post suite. In a dark post suite, that'll burn your retinas or just give you a headache. Probably won't burn your retinas. It'll give you a headache. But I do like that the cine monitors are giving that level of brightness out. And so the real trade-off, if you're deciding between these two monitors, is the cine monitors are really designed for field use, which means they're going to focus on a higher peak brightness because they're focusing on usability in, like, a set. And in a set, sometimes it's day exterior. You're set up outside. That's why they went for 3,000 nits on their uh, integrated 703 bolt is, you know, you can wander around outside and just look at the monitor and see it. You don't have to build a big tent around it or something like that. And so the cine monitor is really focused on that. And the vision line, really focusing on more usability and higher contrast in the post suite. It's interesting that there are 114% of DCI-P3. A lot of people are wondering, like, well, if DCI-P3 is the color space that, you know, you're releasing theatrically, why do you need a monitor that's going to show you even outside of that color space? And I think it's interesting, first off, to remember that we have a variety of different color gamuts we use in film. Rec. 709 is still very common. Rec. DCI-P3 is bigger than 709, even bigger than that's 2020. Uh, I don't know of any monitors yet that cover 100% of 2020. I don't even know that Dolby does. So what happens when they design color spaces is they try and design a color space that's even bigger than any technology today can show to sort of future-proof it. Because we're going to end up working with a color space for a long time. You don't want it to be so big that you're wasting data. You don't want it to be so big that the files become massive because of all the data sets they have to encode, but you want it to be like big enough that as technology continues to evolve, you're prepared for it. Because the cine monitors cover 100% of DCI-P3, which frankly, 10 years ago, having a post monitor that covered full P3 would have been exciting and we would have paid good money for it. And like, hooray. And I, I think there's going to be some people who like use the cine monitors both in the field and then turn it down to a thousand nits for working in post. I think we're going to see a lot of that, actually. If you're like a one mule team kind of guy who's or gal, one mule team kind of person who's like frequently out in the field and then back in the post suite, I think we're going to see a lot of people who like have the same cine monitor in both places. I think we're going to see that and it's going to be cool. But short of that, I think what we're really talking about is we're talking about the vision monitors being a little more future-proofed. So as you start to go for further workflows, if you end up with a full 2020 deliverable that's mapping to the full 2020 space, it's probably not going to show the full 2020 space because no monitor does. But by going to 114% of DCI-P3, you're getting really close. You're getting to this very big color gamut. And I think that's sort of what they're aiming for with the vision having the color space to be that big. So I think we're going to see 
You know, it's nice that we're starting to see true HDI monitors in an affordable space, high degree of color accuracy. One of the nice things about small HD, uh, they probe every monitor that goes out. You can see a Klein K10 in their marketing where they're like showing the, the monitors getting probed. Generally, when I open the box on a small HD monitor and I probe it here in my office, I am very impressed. I actually, one monitor I had from small HD, it was so accurate out of the box and I tried to create a lot that would make it even more accurate. And I couldn't, it was like a 1.2 out of the box. Anything under two is visually indistinguishable from perfect. And my home setup, I couldn't get it better than 1.3, but at the factory, they'd gotten it to 1.2. Don't know how they did it. I've emailed with them a bit about it. It's kind of a mystery. Um, I'm actually sending my client K10 in to get checked uh, in case that's part of the mystery in this whole cycle. So small HD is now releasing some small 4k stuff. I wonder how long it's going to be before we've got some small 8K stuff. Up next in gear news, Quasar. If you don't know Quasar, there's a couple companies that are really competing for the high end of the light tube market, right? A couple weeks ago in gear cage, I talked about the Nanlite Pavo tubes, which I really like in sort of the affordable indie end. They have a battery built in. You can stick them anywhere. It's all good. As I said, the big drawback is the lack of an app there. You can't do these big, complicated, pre-programmed color moves. When you're looking up at the higher end, you're looking at like Estera's and Quasar's. Those are the two big, most popular tubes you're going to hear a lot about. Quasar's are very popular. But interestingly, they just rolled out a whole new update to their DC power supply. And I'm going to tell you why I like this. It seems a little obscure, but bear with me for why I think this is interesting. One thing a lot of people don't think about when they think about those little tubes is you immediately are like, ooh, little battery-powered tubes. This is great. I can put them wherever I want, and I don't even have to worry about them. But you don't actually want to run on tiny batteries for very long. Like, you know, it's almost guaranteed that the light's going to die on you midway through a take. You want some sort of power going to them. And these are all battery-powered lights, but you want that battery to be something that's easily accessible and swappable. So let's say you're shooting in a barn or you're shooting in a field or somewhere else where you don't have access to AC power, you're running off DC power. You don't want, ideally, to have to run an individual battery to each light so that as each battery dies, you're running around constantly trying to like pick up each battery and swap it out. You want some sort of system to get to the smallest number of batteries possible. Now, there are solutions out there that let you like remotely use Bluetooth to manage battery health. I think it's Blue Shape. Tell me who it is, Twitter, because I don't remember. So you can do that. But what I really like about what Quasar just rolled out is it's a whole bunch of accessories, including splitters and extenders and Amphenol connectors that are all designed to make it as simple as possible to run like the smallest number of block batteries as you need in order to power your lights. And the best part about it is all the extensions that are built into it. So you can run those batteries far away from your tubes. The LED tubes are part of your production design. You're seeing them. You don't want to have to run out and mess with production design to swap a battery out in the shot. You ideally want to be able to run that power, even if it's going to a battery, to somewhere far distant so that it's behind the camera. Ideally, you've got like one station with like a bunch of different batteries that you're swapping out in order to have more control to not interrupt your set designer's work and to be able to hive the batteries appropriately. So that's what all these new DC accessories are really going to let you do. They make plates that you can just mount to the back of the uh, light. So if you want to just have like four lights and then use one splitter to get it down to one cable and run it into one V-mount battery on the back of the Quasar, that's great. You've now got that option and that's super cool, but it's also great to have a bunch of like really small cable extensions, use Amphimols to get them together, 2.1 millimeter barrel connectors in order to get them into the light. And then you've got this much more robust system that's going to make it much easier to work with these lights when you're running on all DC power. I think car jobs, day exterior, night exterior, field jobs where you're running without AC, 
I think there's going to be a lot of pleasant flexibility that comes from all this extensibility. It's one of those things that you don't tend to think about. Like, you know, most people, they're like, ooh, LED tubes. I just have all this freedom. But actually, you have to get power to them. And uh, it's nice to have a lot of options when you're figuring out how to get power to them. That all just came out from Quasar Science. All right, up next is Gear Cage in my hand, which some of you cannot see because most of you listen on the podcast. Although, you know, I, I don't know if I should share stats, but whatever. About 30% of our listeners seem to be YouTubers in terms of our numbers. Like, you know, 30 to 40% of every episode seems to be people watching. So I'm going to go ahead and hold up the Narbox. This is the Narbox 2.0. If you don't know Narbox and the Minar company, it's Narbox, G-N-A-R-B-O-X, and they make a funny device. It's an awesome device. The first one was more for photographers, but this one I feel like is finally interesting for filmmakers. It is an SD card reader and a hard drive and a battery in one unit. And what's exciting about that is you can tether this to your phone. Great, exciting, dig it. It works if you don't tether it to your phone. So you're out there shooting. The example I gave, I just did a written review too. The example I gave a lot in the written review was like, you know, you're in a swamp, you're wearing gaiters, you're out there with a the camera, you're shooting B-roll, you're shooting nature footage, you're shooting establishing shots, your location, whatever it is. You're out there, you fill a card, you could like literally take this out of your pocket, stick the SD card in it, hit backup, put it back in your pocket and keep shooting. You don't need a laptop, you don't need to like pair it with your phone. You can pair it with your phone. And when it's paired with your phone, you can manage your media and delete stuff. You can preview shots with your phone. And that's H.264 and H.265 and ProRes. The fact that it plays ProRes is super cool. So if you're shooting on like a Blackmagic Pocket to SD cards or Atomos or something, uh, you can preview those shots that are stored on your Narbox with your phone or iPad. So like that's super cool. But the main thing is that it's all integrated in one body. You don't need to tether it to your computer for it to work. You don't need to tether it to your phone. It has an operating system that is designed by Narbox. There's an SSD in there. Uh, the original Narbox was mostly hard drive focused and felt more still photographer focused. This one, they're definitely really focusing on filmmakers or growing. I mean, I don't think they're neglecting still photographers and there's integration with photo mechanic and integration with Lightroom, but they're really focusing on expanding into filmmaking with the 2.0 and it's all SSD, which matters more to filmmakers because the speed really matters because our files are much bigger. The downloads were a little too slow for video on the old system, but on the new system, the downloads feel much more robust. You've also got a mini HDMI connector, which is super cool. You've got USB-C ports on both sides. And you can use the USB-C search to charge. You can use them to back up. You can use the USB to plug this into a laptop, and then it becomes a hard drive when you put it in hard drive mode. Coolest of all, like I've got a little thumb drive in here now, or I could plug in like a Samsung T5 into that USB-C port, and it will do multiple simultaneous downloads. So I stick my SD card in, and I do backup, and I set multiple backups. I have to use the app right now to set it up, but I'm sure it'll be in the interface in eventually. And it will simultaneously back up to the internal SSD and to the thumb drive. Why is that so cool? Well, first off, we want more copies, right? Two copies is the bare minimum I ever feel comfortable with before I download a uh, camera original card. Insurance companies require three copies. That's what's encouraged on the big productions. So if I have an SD card and I pop it in here and I hit download and it makes a copy to the SSD and to the thumb driver, my Samsung T5 that I've like rubber banded on this thing. I immediately have three copies, the SSD, the Narbox and the external. And that makes me feel much safer because I've had SD cards die, right? I know a lot of productions, you're out there with a little camera, you shoot and you're like, oh, I'll wait to do my download when I get home. Cause it's just an SD card. I have had SD cards break. 
I've switched over to almost entirely Sony Tough at this point, and that thing's much more robust, but that doesn't actually mean that like I couldn't lose it or drop it or any number of other things. So I feel much better with the idea that I'm like with something like Narbox, I'm gonna be able to like download immediately in the field, and that's really nice. I also like the fact that uh, with the USB-C, you could also hook it up to a card reader. They make a CFast reader. I think it's going to be very popular with CFast users. Um, I wonder if they're even going to come out with a CFast internal at some point where you buy like either the SD version or the CFast version. I mean, theoretically, I think you could even hook it up to like a red Minimag reader. Now, the biggest size is one terabyte. So that's going to be really great for certain jobs where you're shooting a lot of H.264, H.265 on a DSLR or on a mirrorless, I don't think you're probably going to use this in a red job because, you know, that's two 512 mini mags, which will go pretty quickly. But it's super lightweight. The batteries are interchangeable. They say you get about three to six hours out of each battery charge. I've been playing with it for about two weeks now, and I find the convenience to be really great. Obviously, if I'm on a bigger job where I'm taking out a router Alexa, putting up a laptop on a table, getting out my hard drive, setting up a DIT station, not a big deal. But that's not every job I do. And that's not every job anybody does. And honestly, it's not even every part of every job. Like, I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a music video shoot, and we have, like, two beautiful red cameras shooting A and B cam, and the director's like, hey, I got a 5D Mark IV, I'm just going to get some C cam. And, like, yes, technically they should be giving those SD cards to the DIT to making sure it all gets processed. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, sometimes they download it themselves. And this kind of thing, I think, is going to be really useful in those scenarios. Where, you know, the BTS team, the C camera team, something like that are going to be able to make copies as they go and hopefully handing it over to the DIT on set. But maybe they're handing it over to post the day after two days after or something like that. Honestly, I would be excited for like a Narbox Pro that was like an SSD raid with like a red mini mag reader and it was all one box. And it was all nicely rubberized and had a battery. I would actually buy that. You hear that, Narbox? I might even add that to my written interview. I would like a like $4,000 Narbox Pro. I don't know, actually, that I would buy it at $4,000. But I bet people would. I don't work quite enough to justify it. But if I was back doing like two shoots a month, a Narbox Pro that was like a battery-powered, rubberized, ruggedized with like eight terabytes of redundant SSD storage where I could just pop mini mags straight in and they would just like immediately make redundant checksum verified copies, I'd be excited. Oh, and it checksum verifies. Yet another reminder, checksum verification is one of those things that I can't talk about enough because it seems like people don't really know it. If you just do what we call a finder copy, or I guess in Windows Explorer, a Windows Explorer copy, it makes a copy of your file, but doesn't check it. I'm not going to go into all of checksum verification here. Maybe I should do a dedicated week where I explain checksum verification. I'm getting pretty good at it because I have to teach it like three times a year now, but it checks the copy. It's a little slower but you are confident that the camera original footage got copied properly. And every once in a while, files do get corrupted. It's happened to all of us. We try and open a file, and there's some file error, and checksum verification lessens the frequency of that. And the Narbox 2 SSD will do checksum verified copies for no other reason than like this and a $200 Samsung T5 that you wrap it to this with a rubber band, and you have redundant copies with checksum verification that you don't have to occupy your laptop with. Uh, I don't know. I think that's incredibly cool. Uh, the Narbox 1.0, I liked. It was fun. You could hook it up to LumaForge on your iPad to edit with. Oh, and you can also do that. You can hook this to your iPad as a drive. It connects directly to your iPad as a drive. So if you're editing in your iPad, you can use this as your storage drive on the iPad. I still don't know if I'm going to edit on an iPad. I might try. It's another feature this does. But the, the Narbox 2.0 SSD really starts to feel like something where there's tools for filmmakers 
where I'm like, oh yeah, for a lot of filmmaking workflows, I think this guy is going to be a really interesting addition to the party. All right, up next, hey professor. This professor, hey professor, is from Matt McKenna, former student, uh, Chicago-based DP. You're on the lookout for a DP in Chicago. Hit up Matt McKenna. He is great. He is both talented and a pleasure to work with. So he asks, I'm thinking about an FX9. Talk to me about the 6K, 4K thing. Uh, a quick review for those of you who don't obsessively listen to every episode. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I got to see the FX9 a couple days before it came out. The FX9 is the new update of the Sony FS7. The FS7 is there, was there really dominant, like one mule team, owner operator, documentary, um, camera. Also, you see it a lot in music videos, but like it was really the dominant dock camera for a super long time. Um, 4K, internal storage, Sony E-mount, beauty of an E-mount is you could adapt it to PL. Um, and the FX9 just came out. And the big marquee feature with the FX9 that they marketing is that it's a 6K sensor. But it only records to 4K formats. And like that doesn't bother me in the slightest. But it is a weird marketing thing that Sony's doing. The other thing is it's a full-frame sensor, which means it's a bigger sensor physically. It's going to be more like the sensor in the A7S, the A7R, stuff like that, because it's a physically much larger sensor than the Super 35 size sensor that we saw with the FS7 and the FS7 Mark II. So it's like a $10,000 camera. Now, I'm going to I'm going to talk about 6K 4K, but I'm first going to talk about the thing I'm actually more excited about with this camera. The thing I'm more excited about with this camera is autofocus. Autofocus gets a terrible rap because it's mostly shitty garbage. The autofocus we think of when I say autofocus, you're picturing like, oh, I've got a Sony PD-150 and I click the autofocus button and it's like, focus, out of focus, focus, out of focus, focus, out of focus. It's like constantly searching and checking and then it's like my glasses are in focus, but my eyes aren't and it's not very good. That's the tradition of what we think of when we think about autofocus. However, in the last three or four years, autofocus is getting crazy good. Um, there's like AI driven features like face detect and eye detect that are really starting to drive autofocus into interesting new places. I got invited to a press event from Sony at a soccer game a couple years ago and they had the, the alpha nine had just come out the a nine and the autofocus on that thing is like crack cocaine. Like you're standing on the side of a soccer field on a long lens, whatever the long zoom is, it's a full frame sensor in that camera. So it's a big old sensor, big sensor means smaller depth of field. I'm out there. The sun is setting. It's, it's like dusk exterior. So pretty wide on the lens, pretty long focal length. I don't remember what it was. It was long hundred millimeter or something. And I was just like panning around the game and like the ball would go to one end of the field and I just panned to the one end of the field and then it would come to the other end of the field. And like, I was down by the field goal. So it wasn't like I was panning side to side. It was like people were going a hundred meters from me back hundred meters from me back. And it was just like following the action in focus. I just panned around and I felt reasonably confident it would always be in focus. Not always perfect. There were a couple of things it missed, but it was, it was, it was impressive and exciting. And I wanted it in a film camera. Do I want it in a narrative camera? No. If I'm out and I'm doing a single camera narrative show where it's like very dramatic and I want to be able to like do that classic shot where I'm in a car and like the FBI agents in one seat and the informants in the other. And I'm like racking back and forth on their lines. And then I stay on the informant while the FBI agent says that he's not going to be able to protect him. And the informant looks scared. I want to make choices with focus in a narrative camera. And there I'm still going to want a traditional autofocus, but like, I'm not in a point in my career where every single one of my jobs is a highly controlled traditional narrative job. I'd like to be, that would be fun, but I'm still in a point in my career where I do a lot of doc work. I like doc work. It's fun. I'm also in a point in my career where I 
even when I'm doing narrative work, it might be nice to have a little autofocus to supplement. So like, I'm going to lean forward and back for you YouTubers right now. And this is something a lot of actors do. If you watch like American Graffiti, Richard Dreyfuss does it all the time in American Graffiti. And it's really annoying because like I'm in focus, I lean back, I'm out of focus. I'm moving like two inches back and forth and focus is drifting on me because I'm, I just use manual focus when I do these videos. Um, and when I do this podcast, this is a podcast first. The video is like supplement. You know what? Even on a narrative job, if I had one of those actors who like leans forward back and forth, once I'd set focus on their eye, the ability to like subtly switch on autofocus so that as the actor leans forward, back and forth, it just keeps them in focus as they lean forward, back and forth. Because, you know, it's always artificial. If an actor is doing that, even if it's like maybe Richard Dreyfuss doesn't do that in every movie. Maybe it was a character choice in American Graffiti. You don't want to have to say to an actor, hey, that character choice that you feel is important. Can you not do that? Because it's hard for camera. Like if it's an important character choice, let them do it. And it would be really nice to have a camera that I could just switch into autofocus and it would just follow them. Because that particular kind of focus is very hard for a focus puller, even on a 50-inch screen with a Bolt 4K and a you know WCU unit from Aerie. Like, it's just very hard to get in the rhythm of that. That's one thing. And so they're saying not only with the FX9 that it's coming with autofocus tools pulled from the Alpha line, from the Alpha 9 line. It's also they're coming up with these cinema lenses that are designed to be cinema-quality glass but work with autofocus systems. So there's a whole bunch of exciting, cool stuff that's all happening together there that I think is really exciting. So that's the marquee feature for me, the FX9. And that's what I'm excited about is I want to get my hands on that camera body and their autofocus uh, lenses and do a narrative shoot and see if it's useful. I guarantee you it's going to be useful in doc shoots. Guarantee you. If you're going out and doing any kind of run-and-gun shoot, there's going to be so many times where Alpha 9, A9 quality autofocus is going to be killer in a cinema body. But one of the things they're really marketing, and, and it's going to be especially useful because the FX9 is that bigger full-frame sensor. Full-frame is nice because it's going to give you better low light, but it's a drawback because it's going to be shallower depth of field, so you're really going to use that autofocus a lot more than you might on Super 35. But that's not what Matt asked about. Matt asked about 6K. So it's a 6K sensor, but it only records 4K. What up with that? There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. First off, it's a bare array sensor. We, this is something we've all been talking about for about 10 years now because of the RED cameras. But, you know, it's, it's important to remember that a 6K sensor only has, like, if that's 6,000 pixels, that's, I'm, I'm making these numbers up. This isn't real. But let's say 2,000 pixels of red, 2,000 pixels of green, and 2,000 pixels of blue. It's not actually evenly divided. There's more green pixels, but whatever. Really, it's only a 6 if there's 6,000 pixels across, technically, officially, because you have to take a pixel of green, a pixel of red, and a pixel of blue together to get a complete full-color pixel, it's only like a 2,000-pixel resolution camera, so you could call it 2K. However, the math is actually really sophisticated in taking a 2K, a 6K Bayer, B-A-Y-R, signal and debayering it to a high-quality image, right? We used to say when the RED camera first came out that a 4K RED signal actually debayered to about 2.5K. I would actually say it's more like 2.7 to 2.9K now. But what I'm really talking about is, like, Ks are actually irrelevant here. It's actually what I'm worried about is resolving power. I want to be able to shoot a lens chart, like the Able Cine lens chart, which shows, like, line pairs down to very small line pairs. I want to be able to shoot it. I want to be able to show it on a 20-foot screen. And I want to be able to see how far down the imager resolves. That's what's important to me. A properly debayered image using modern debayering algorithms, a 6K sensor is going to give you about 4K resolution once it's debayered. This is why Arri, when they originally came out with the Alexa, called it a 2.5K camera. They had more than enough pixels to call it a 4K camera. If they wanted, for marketing's sake, they debayered in-camera, created 2.5K ProRes files, and that was why it was 2.5K 
resolution. So I think of this as being like a reasonable 4K camera, right? It's a 6K sensor that they're internally debayering it down to 4K. And I think that's probably all the resolving power you're going to get out of it. Even when they, um, because I'm sure there'll be a firmware update that rolls out 6K recording. If you switch it between 4K and 6K mode, I sincerely doubt even with tremendous pixel peeping, you're going to see a whole lot more resolving power out of 6K than out of 4K in that camera. Because the 6K will be a raw format that's recorded undebared, and the 4K will be debared. Once you debare that 6K raw, you're going to only resolve as about as much as 4K, is my guess. I haven't tested it. There's not a way to record 6K out of that camera right now. But like, you know, when we used to shoot the 4K Red 1, it would debare, and we'd have about 2.5K resolving power the 8k red footage we're shooting now you're getting like 6k resolution out of it once you to bear so that's why i'm comfortable with it now the thing it doesn't give you is it doesn't give you the benefit of reframing you know if you shoot 8k and you get like a equivalently 6k resolution file you can zoom in on it a little bit and then use image stabilization or reframing as much as you want and still have a nice crisp 4k image you're not getting that out of this camera but i think the other things you're getting out of the camera are a good equivalent trade-off i also think you got to remember they've got to like manage workflows so right now nobody else except red can do internal raw recording so right now if you wanted something like 6k raw out of this camera you're going to have to go to an external recorder which i'm sure they're going to do within a year there's an external recorder now for i think 14-bit raw but 16-bit raw might be coming and frankly i'll take 16-bit over 6k because the more bits you get in your raw file the greater latitude you're going to be able to record in the source latitude of the image so even if a sensor can record a really wide latitude if you record it to like an 8-bit or a 10-bit file, you have to throw a lot of that latitude out. But if you have a 16-bit raw file, hooray, you can keep all the latitude the sensor has and not have to throw any of it away. So I'm more excited about firmware updates. I think I was just seeing that a firmware update's coming for 16-bit raw. And I'm like, that's personally way more exciting to me because I would way rather have latitude than resolution. I would way rather hold more detail in the sky, hold more detail in a window, see deeper into shadows than I necessarily need more resolution. And I know that that firmware update's been officially announced. But internal recording, they can't record raw internally because of this lawsuit. Now, Apple might win this lawsuit against Red, in which case all bets are off and we'll see all sorts of cool internal recording solutions. So they've got to stick with internal recording and debayered files, 6K files. Like you don't want to record 6K internal files to most card formats. They're going to get really big. Like the thing we all forget is that like Red Code, the patent predicted thing that lets Red do 8K internal is an amazing technology that allows you to take raw images and compress them enough that the files are manageable within internal recording without that, which Sony doesn't have access to because of patent lawsuits. And Sony tried to fight those lawsuits in 2012, 2013. Without that, Sony's really not in a place where there is like a convenient way for them to make a 6K to take that 6K data off the sensor. So it makes more sense for the workflows that they're trying to get this to fit into to make it a we do internal debayering. That internal debayering creates this really nice 4K image. I bet it's beautiful. Everything I saw at the preview day at Sony in Sony's crazy bid building in Midtown was gorgeous, although the greens were a little Sony, but they weren't that bad. And you could fix them in color correction. Everything else was gorgeous, and the resolution looked amazing, and you really saw the full-frame quality of the image. I think that's the smarter move for Sony. Record it to a 4K file. That's what most people are going to use it for. Um, it's debayered, it'll pop right into your post workflow, you're all set. So I think that was a really smart move on Sony's part. I think there might be an external 6K RAW format available in a year, maybe. I think it's six months away from the firmware update for 16-bit RAW, and that's sort of where I come down the FX9. I think the FX9 is going to be a big hit. I think if you're out there, whether this Matt McKenna or anybody thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get a lot of rentals out of this, 
I think it's going to be a big hit in the rental market. I think it's really going to like occupy a lot of that FS7 space. I personally would probably go EVA1, but I also have a long history of Panasonic. So I'm not neutral. Is anybody neutral? Is there a neutral camera reviewer out there who's like, I've shot everything equally. I have, I have nothing but the neutralist opinion. I don't. I've shot a lot of Panasonic. I would lean slightly EVA1. But the FX9, especially that autofocus, and I bet the low light's killer with that full frame. So I hope that answers your question, Mr. McKenna. That has been the week in film tech for October 3rd, 2019. Uh, if you're in the New York Tri-State area, October 30th, Adorama, 5 to 7. I'm going to be talking about lighting with apps. It starts at 5. I'll probably end by like 6.15 or so. And because uh, lighting with apps is a cool thing that I'm learning all about in order to share it with you guys. Business and Entrepreneurship and Film came out. Check that out. October 16th, my other book, Color Grading 101, comes out. Check that out. Tell your friends about this podcast if there are other film nerds that you want to keep up to speed. Subscribe all of the places where you subscribe. Check us out at weekendfilmtech.com or you can sign up for our mailing list. And you'll get an email once a week with like links to everything I talked about on here. All right, everybody. Have fun making movies and we'll see you next week. Next week.